0: Or are we a son? Now, I don't mean that in any minutes, uh to bring uh, uh, any type of uh, dishonor to our ladies in the room, but just in a general sense that we are sons or that we are men or women of God. So in this, but simply saying, uh, are we a true follower of Christ, a son or daughter of God? Or are we enslaved by the elementary principles of this world? And with that, I mean, I believe the author of this passage is meaning that religion in and of itself, are we gravitating toward religious experiences and religious uh, services rather than a true relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? And this is exactly the heart of what this entire book has been about, uh, genuine fellowship of Christ, genuine relationship with Christ or are we uh, more interested in following rules and regulations and attempts to man-made attempts to earn our own righteousness to, to be declared righteous before God and we know that's been a the theme that Paul's been hammering to the churches in Galatia at this particular time and so once again Paul's writing to a number of churches not just one church but the churches of Galatia we saw in chapter one that would be Antioch, Pisidia, uh, Elystra, Anconium, Derby, uh, and so these are the churches that he would be writing to in his, in his first in his missionary journeys that he had walked, and and God had utilized him to plant those churches that were there. <clears throat> and subsequent to his coming, uh, others, Judaizers, those who would follow the law of the Jewish ceremonies and, and uh, the laws of the Old Testament, have come in and said, listen, you have to follow these laws, you Gentiles, if you're going to be saved. And this has been the debate throughout the entire book that Paul has been making, and so with the key theme verses being verse 15 and 16 of chapter 2, where he says that we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, by trying to keep rules, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And so, once again, just a constant reminder that three times in one verse, in verse 16 there in chapter 2, that Paul continued to communicate You are saved by grace through faith, and no one will be justified by their own works. And he continues to use this illustration throughout the remainder of the book. And in today's passage, as we look through chapter 4, 1 through 7, he is just going to use a different analogy of the same argument. And so prior to this, just to set it up, in verse 23 through 29, so Pastor Tim did a marvelous job of walking us through last week, uh, the, the use and purpose of the law and how it was utilized in our poor definitions of the law and how we utilize it sometimes even in Christian circles. It's not a biblical usage of how the Bible would use the term law. But even in that, the, the purpose of the law was a guardian. Now, this guardian that's used here is important for us to understand what that is because it's going to play into our passage this morning. The guardian that's listed there. Sometimes can be translated a schoolmaster or a tutor, but ultimately it's, it was a guardian that would keep a child until the child came of age. And so it would be similar to a nanny, if you will, but it was, most often it was a male slave who would be over, the overseer of this particular child with a mandate from the parents that the child would do the variety of things that it was called to do. And so they would take the child to its variety of different places where it would be schooled. It would take the child to a variety of the areas where it would be taught and instructed, and then it would also be the disciplinarian in the relationship with the child. And so, and this <clears throat> slave, the servant, if you will, was the one who had guardianship of the child while the parents did or the father did other things. And so this is the picture here that Paul is saying: the law of God of the Old Testament was this type of guardian until Christ came. So it instructed us in how to live and what to do until Christ came. But in order that we might be justified by faith. And so ultimately it was just there, but that person might be an heir to a variety of property, a variety of things, but ultimately had a guardian that would tell it what to do until it came of age. And so this is from moving from that passage. This is exactly the practical illustration that we're going to be walking through this morning. And so in Galatians 4 through 7, we're going to pick up on this guardian and its role. Uh, and then bring that analogy to uh, unbeliever to a believer in our relationship with the, this particular passage. And so the theme for us this morning is, are we a slave or are we a son? Do you, and let me just kind of get practical on us to this for a moment, just to help us set the tone and set the stage where we're at. When you think of God, you think of your relationship to God, is your bottom line, that kind of the, the the base of your your thoughtfulness of God, simply attempting to try to keep him happy. And if so, let me just encourage you, that's not the basis upon the relationship that God desires to have with you. It's not like he's angry with you and just waiting for you to, to mess up, to blow it. If that was the case, he would have never saved us to begin with. There was nothing in us, nothing in you, nothing in myself that God looked at us and said, man, I just really need him on my team. It would complete me as if he's like on Jerry Maguire or something and that we would complete him in some form or fashion. If we came to faith in him, he's self-sufficient, self-satisfying, self-serving in the sense that he doesn't need anyone to serve him, not that he's egotistical but ultimately that he he is all sufficient in and of himself and does not need you or i and so let me hopefully encourage us this morning that as we even go through some studies on worry fear and anxiety that God god's not in heaven waiting for us to mess up so that he can smite us and if so there's Probably, if that's the viewpoint you have, then there's probably some legalism in your heart and soul. And there's probably some viewpoints that are probably not beneficial, helpful to you as you relate. And some of that potentially could be how you were reared and your were in relationship with your parents. Maybe, maybe not. I'm not blaming your parents. It's on you. But the reality is, as we look through the Gospels, as we look through the Scriptures, I encourage you, this is not what God wants us to view, our relationship with Him. And if that's how you primarily view this relationship with God, you could be enslaved to legalism rather than be freed to sonship, being adopted, to be freed up, to be liberated. And so hopefully this passage can help us. And In this, we want to work, work through three major points. We want to see a practical illustration that Paul uses. We want to then see that Paul then moves from this practical illustration to see the legal transaction that takes place. And then finally, a personal transformation all right, so there's our three major points. We don't have to fill the rest of them, in. just fill out the first one, practical illustration. Practical illustration, we're going to see, and that transfers to Christ in a legal transaction that he makes on our behalf, which then grants the opportunity for a personal transformation to take place in our hearts and lives, okay? So let's begin to look at the first one, practical illustration, verses 1 through 3. He says, as he's picking up on this understanding of what it means to be a true, genuine heir, of, of Christ, uh, or of, of offspring, and we were able to receive the promise that was promised to uh, Abraham. And in this we know that, what was the promise? <clears throat> well, the promise was that all the nations, plural, would be blessed as a result of a seed that would come through Abraham. And that this blessing is the blessing, first and foremost, that we could be declared righteous before God. So in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham was declared righteous because he simply believed. And then as a result of that, and God makes a promise to him that I'm going to send the nations, I'm going to grant you a, a land and a lineage that's going to be yours, that you'll be able to inherit and you'll be able to receive. And as a result of that, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless the nations through you. And Paul picks up on that and begins to say, hey, this was accomplished in Christ, and this was actually a picture of the gospel, even all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. And so this is what it means to be an heir is that we would have the same faith that Abraham exhibited and that we would receive the blessings that comes from that faith. All right. So this is what it means to be an heir. So then he picks up on this in verse 1 and he says, And I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the day set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, what does all that mean? Well, let's kind of just break this down. Hopefully, I can aid it to make make sense to us and not complicate it. But let's walk through this practical illustration. He's going to use an illustration that they would be familiar with. And this illustration was a comparison. So, in your notes there, it's a comparison. He is comparing a slave versus a slave. Son, a slave versus a son, and a child versus an adult. A slave versus a son, and a child versus an adult. Now, what, how do we see this? Well, he says, I mean that the heir, so that would be a son, right, an heir, as long as he is then a child, that's where we pick up on the childhood, the immaturity here, is no different than a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. And so you see this, this picture here, this comparison, and this practical illustration that he just says, I want you guys to understand the relationship of the law as it relates to a a born-again believer and the relationship of, a, of that the law as it relates to an unbeliever. Right. And so here's the picture that he's trying to walk us through to begin to get an understanding as we're trying to think, that, well, how do I interact with the law? And what was the purpose of the law? And he's already said that the law was like this manager or, or schoolmaster or guardian, this nanny, if you will, that was going to be able to do things for us to, to, to prepare us uh, for a certain time that would be set by the father, as you see here in verse, uh, uh, verse 2. And then at that point, we reach maturity and we no longer need that guardian. And this is the comparison that he picks up on. And the reality in this is, is that a slave or a, uh, a servant does what its master says. And he says, and it's no different than a child, though he may be the heir of the master. It's so small, it can't make this wise decisions and can't take care of itself. And so as a result, it's being stewarded by even one of the help household slaves or servants that would take care of it. So one of the slaves or servants would be, be, would be uh, hired or would be utilized by this heir's father to say, hey, I want you to make sure you watch my child and make sure he gets to school and he's doing his homework and he does the things that he's been called to do. And if he doesn't do it, here's what you, here's how you discipline him. How's you, you challenge him. Here's how you, you, um, rear him. And I'm mandating you servant to take care of this heir until the date that I appoint him. And Paul's picking up on that. And he says, listen, it's no different than that, than that heir, even though he's been promised all these things. He's no different than a typical slave because he's receiving instructions, not even by me. He's receiving instructions by via the servant, via a slave that I've entrusted to his care. And so this is the picture he says. Is, there's not this direct relationship necessarily with the father. There's this in between. And he says, and this is a picture of the law. The law was there to demonstrate to us our need for us to be set free. And that freedom would be a would be the coming of Christ. And so you see this comparison, a slave versus a son, a child versus an adult, which ultimately speaks toward the immaturity and the servant. The immaturity of a child, the servant would be a picture of an unbeliever. And the son or the mature adult would be a picture of a believer, and he picks up on this comparison. And then for this comparison, this practical illustration, the comparison then speaks of a transition, a transition in your notes. Look at verse 2. He said, but he is under these guardians or managers until the date set by his father. Now, this is a little bit somewhat familiar to us. Uh, we uh, have a variety that we're familiar with, but it's, it's not as, uh, as direct in our culture as in others. At 18, we are an adult. You're a legal adult, and a variety of things can happen at that particular time. But it's not as big a deal here as in other cultures. Right? Okay, I turned eighteen. That's great. But many of the things that we could be able to do, you can drive before eighteen. A variety of other things, and so it's like, hey, it's it's not as much this this um, passage of manhood if, or womanhood as much as it in other cultures it can be. Whereas in like a you, and even in that you might have a sweet sixteen birthday or a quinceanero. You're fifteen it, within um, um, Mexican or Latino heritages, and so you, you see you're going to see that. But in the ancient cultures, it was much more. Uh, uh, progressive is much more um, of a big deal within those cultures than it is in our deal. And so there's a transition. And culturally, this is seen in three different cultures. You see this being a big deal. First, to be in the Jewish culture. In the Jewish culture, when an individual uh, would turn 12 years old, uh, and the Sabbath after his 12th birthday, he would be brought into uh, the synagogue and there would be a process that would take place. And this was called the bar mitzvah, right? The bar mitzvah. And this would be a time where you're um, being held accountable by God directly and not held accountable by God through your, your father figure. And so this would be where the person is receiving ownership of their life and the, of themselves in the relationship with God and the, the following of the Jewish culture and the Jewish laws. And so this would be the 12-year-old process would be the date that was set forth by the father, but also via the culture. In Grecian culture, that's your next point, and uh, there's a transition in Grecian culture, and in that, there was the 18-year-old birthday, and in that, you became a cadet, and you would begin to serve uh, a particular time, and, and it was around a two-year period that you'd begin to see this this process happen within Grecian culture, and that would be around the age of 18. And then in Roman culture, as your third one, you begin to see, that this was a, a time between 13 and 17 years old. Uh, and it was uh, a, a, a Greek word here. I'll probably mess it up, so I'm not going to use it. But it uh, was a passage upon in that time that, Boys or girls would be, have a time between that 13- and 7-year-old date that, they would, that would be set, and then there would be a ceremony that would take place in this, uh, this Roman culture, and they would go to a pagan temple, because these were pagans at this particular time, and so these go to a pagan temple, and they would make a sacrifice to whatever pagan god they served. And so at that particular time, the boys would come, and they would take their toys or their childish things, and they would bring these childish things uh, that related to their childhood, their adolescence, and they would burn them to whatever particular God that is, uh, demonstrating the transition it would between being a child then moving toward adulthood. And then the same thing for little girls. They would bring their dolls or whatever their toys were, and they would bring that before, and they would burn those to their God, making a sacrifice to their God in, in light of this transition. Well, picking up on this, and remember, Paul's a, a wise guy, right? Not a wise guy like he's a funny, but meaning he's, he's intelligent, he's intellectual, and this is actually what he's addressing the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 13. He picks up on this Roman culture where they would take their child, these childish things and they would burn them to their pagan gods. And this is exactly what he talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. He says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways, childish things. And so he's picking up on this understanding they would have between their own culture that, hey, this distinction between immature, childish and moving to maturity and wise in my behavior in adulthood. And this is the picture here of this transition. And so there would be a date that would be set by the father that would say, at this particular time, you receive full benefits of being a citizen, full responsibility for your actions. I'm no longer responsible for you. You're responsible for yourself. You're making decisions. And now you must be carried out on your own. And so you begin to see this in the Jewish culture, the Grecian culture, the Roman culture. And Paul picking up on this is saying, as a practical illustration, listen, you're a slave or a son. And ultimately, in this historical background, that the law was like that. That you would be, even though you were of the promised people, if you spoke, spoke to the Jews, if you, at some point, this becomes your relationship with God and that ultimately you're not... hanging on to the coattails of your parents it must become your own and so the law was granted that would lead us to faith in Christ and we would trust in Christ and that you're no better than a slave if you never take the reins to be a son but there was a date that was set for us and that date was when Christ came and that Christ could then make payment and end the the ceremonial uh, laws that would be attached to the religious system and he would be the the perfect high priest. He'd be the last prophet. He would be the sacrificial lamb. He would be our king of kings and lord of lords. And so there was this date that was set that would be able to provide for them. And so the practical illustration speaks of a comparison, slave or son, child or adult, a transition between childhood and maturity. And then lastly, freedom, freedom, verse three. In the same way we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. Now, Don't miss this. When we were children, he's picking up on the illustration he was in the argument in verses 1 and 2 that the child was no different than a slave and that the ultimate slave would be a picture that we were tied to the elementary principles of this world or religion in and of itself and that we did not have a relationship with God. It comes to a maturity of being able to see Christ and Christ fully and for us not to get pulled back into the childish things before Christ came. All these This precursors that were there to help us see Christ. Well, Christ has now come. Let's not fall back into religion. Let's trust Christ by faith. And so what you see here is the freedom is that we were enslaved to religious tradition. Enslaved to religious tradition. That's exactly what he says. When we were children, we're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now he says, well, hold on, Pastor. You said religious tradition, not elementary principles of the world. And it says in verse 3, they were enslaved to elementary principles of the world. I believe that means religious tradition. Why do I believe that? If you skip down um, to verses 8 and following, read with me in verses 8. We'll cover this in in a future sermon, but let's just give you a backdrop of why I said what I said. It says, formerly in verse 8, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I have labored over you in vain. And so it's these days and months and seasons and years, all the things that would be based upon man-made traditions and religious structures that Paul is saying, don't buy into those. Yes, it feeds our flesh. Yes, it feels good to us because we're doing something, but don't get caught up in that. That's not the point of, of all those things were to point toward Christ. And so Christ has come, look to him for your status, look to him for your identity, look to him for your freedom, and do not be enslaved to religious traditions, which is exactly the argument that's taking place here. Acts chapter 15 is exactly what was, what was taking place here in the book of Galatians, where in Acts 15 they had a council in the council of Jerusalem to say, must a person be circumcised in order to be saved? And at that council in Acts chapter 15, they said, no." and again Paul is saying this as well in the book of Galatians: "No, it is by faith in Christ. Why don't I look to a schoolmaster when I've been freed? Am I looking to a guardian when I've been freed to be able to live this life on my own? And so enslaved to religious tradition, uh, rather than be enslaved to religious tradition, we've now been freed to spiritual justification. freed to spiritual justification. How is a person freed then to spiritual justification? Because our faith is in Christ. We simply believe in him, and he grants us his righteousness, right? And that's what happens. How does that righteousness get granted to us? Well, we move then from the practical illustration to a legal transaction. So practical illustration now moves to a legal transaction. That's what we see in verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were born under law so that we might receive adoption as sons. He so, says so you guys were slaves. You were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world, all the religious traditions. You don't have to be enslaved to those. You can be freed to personal and spiritual justification. You can be declared righteous before God. And it's not by all these things you have to do. It's by, based upon your faith in Christ. And so when did that happen? When God sent forth his son to be a propitiation to appease the wrath of God against sin so that we don't have to continue to carry on the ceremonial sacrifices, so we don't have to go to the temple, that Christ would now reside in us. And so I want us to see the legal transition, and this is just where the passage explodes. And as a result, I'm not even sure I'm going to be able to finish all this because these two verses alone are just jam-packed with, uh, unbelievable grace of God. So let's just take some time and walk through these. So this legal transaction. What do we know about this legal transaction? Number one, it elevates and exalts the sovereignty of God. God's sovereignty. God is in complete control, and it, and and that's a great thing. It sometimes rubs us wrong when we think about it because we want to be in control and. And we're Americans, and we we have a democracy, and we get to vote on things. And even though we're not a sheer democracy, we're representative government, representative democracy. We vote people who then make decisions for us. But nonetheless, the reality in this is that we love our freedom, and we boast of our freedom. And that's a great thing, and I'm grateful for freedoms. Hear me clearly. But in this, there's something good to also know that in light of our freedom, there is someone who's outside of our time and space and freedom, or lack thereof. And be able to say he is ultimately in control of all things. Because I don't know about for you, but even in the midst of our great freedoms, everything doesn't go the way I want it to go. No matter how much I plan and how much I prepare and how much I want things, how I try to encourage others and minister to others, they don't do what I want them to do sometimes. And some of that's just because what I want them to do is completely selfish and self-centered. Right? It's not selfless or sacrificial in its 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 mindset. And so as a result, that goes wrong for me because what I want, I don't get. And many times it's because I have selfish ambition behind it. But even when those attitudes are right and I want what's best for the person, they don't always respond the way they should respond, they even do what's best for them in, in order to bring the honor and glory to God. We make mistakes, and those mistakes create problems. So we make a mistake on I-75 at rush hour and um. um Semi jackknives, guess what happens? Everyone's day now has changed, has it not? When all six lanes are shut down or we have the snow apocalypse that happened several years ago, right? And no one can get home. We're on the road for 18 hours and running out of fuel as we're we're sitting on the roads, right? That changed all of our plans. But in the midst of that, to know, guess what? God knows where I'm at. He knows every hair on my head. He knows every thought and intention in my heart and if he can feed the sparrows he can take care of me and that's and that's good for us to see god's sovereignty well, i want us to see god's sovereignty first and foremost in this simple statement but when the fullness of time had come the fullness, now that can just blow right past you and you just read it and you don't really have an understanding of on ah, the fullness of time, that's great. I don't know what that means. And we transition on to all the other things that make more sense. God sent forth His Son. I'm familiar with that. Born of a woman. I'm familiar with that. Her name was Mary. Born under the law. I get that. To redeem those who are under the law, it's where He made payment for me so that I can be a son. I totally get those. And then we just blow past the fullness of time. But in the fullness of time, you see the sovereignty of God and how amazing this is. A couple of years ago, in the Christmas Eve service, this was the theme, the fullness of time, and how it came out. And it was in that's where I had done some studies and was really encouraged by this. And so let's, let's see what the fullness of time actually represents, how it elevates God's sovereignty. The fullness of time is seen in Christ coming at the right time. You think, well, that's pretty obvious. But how do we know that was the right time? You ever thought about this? Why did God wait so long? Like, why couldn't Jesus have just shown up, like, right after I ate the apple, and then just stomped the little you know, serpent at that moment, right? Things go bad and he's like, kills the serpent and everything's great, right? Why Why do there have to be centuries of rebellion? Thousands of years of of difficulty. What is God doing? Right? Why, why do things... Well, I can't speak to that. I don't know the Bible doesn't always communicate, but here's what we know. God is in control. And in this I wanted to show part of... Jesus showing up at the right time. It was the right time religiously. and Much of this was pulled by John MacArthur. I really appreciated his, uh, his homework and research in this. And in my study of the speaker passage, much much of this is being pulled from him. So i want to give him the credit. It was the right time religiously. Now, what does that mean? Well, up until the exile and the, or the children of Israel were then held captive uh, first by the Assyrians, the northern kingdom um, um, was taken captive, um, uh, was taken captive first. And then later, the southern kingdom was taken captive by Babylon. When those two happened, much of that was related to their disobedience to God and their un- uh, unwillingness to honor how uh, the law of the, the Sabbath year, and as far as letting the land lay dormant. And so you see the number of years was attached and related to that. But you also see there was a continual problem where there was idolatry constantly, and there was this, this complete paganism that was bleeding itself into the temple. You see, after this, after the exile, that that wasn't as much a problem for them. Yes, they completely missed it and missed the fact that the Messiah was standing right before them, so I'm not saying they were sinless. But they, had, in this uh, time of exile, it began to show them who they were and their identity and longing for the Messiah to come and, and bring them back to their land and lineage. So you begin to see that idolatry was one of the things that had had, had been um, aided to, to not completely eradicate it, but it wasn't as as massive an issue as you begin to see. As it was before the exile. And another thing you see, begin to see religiously, this was the right time for Jesus to be able to come, was number two, that the synagogues were designed. Right? So before this, you had the temple, and they were supposed to go to the temple for worship. And that was a problem when the northern kingdom separated the southern kingdom. When Solomon became king, the two kingdoms uh, were separated, and you had Uh, Jeroboam of the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom and they began to try to make other places primarily Samaria be the capital where they could worship there but that's not where God had prescribed. God said you will worship me at Zion right you will worship me in Jerusalem that's where I prescribe my presence will be and so they were they were dishonoring that by they didn't want to they want to separate kingdoms and so as a result of that they wanted to have their own and they didn't want to go to southern kingdom in, in a fear that Uh, they would gain power, the southern kingdom would gain more power than the northern kingdom, and so as a result of that, they created their own places of worship. That was a real problem. But then after the temple was destroyed, the synagogues were a tremendous aid to where they could continue to be teaching of the scriptures and provision of the scriptures to them. You also see there was a gathering of all the Old Testament writings, and so it was provided for them when they came back all together. Well, not all of them together, but when those who the remnant were able to return to the land, that the, the, the law of God, the word of God was provided for them, and the, uh, the Old Testament was provided for them. So you see continual teaching uh, and worship taking place at synagogues, which, by the way, Paul used um, with great excellence, right? You begin to think, even with Galatia or other locations, he would go to a place, and he would first go, whenever he'd go to Gentile areas, he would go to the synagogue where there would be teaching of the Jewish traditions, And so the beauty in that was, and going to those places, he didn't have to start all the way back at Genesis chapter 1. He picks up on, who are you guys longing for? We're waiting for the Messiah. Guess what? He's arrived. Let me tell you who he is. His name's Jesus. And he would inevitably get kicked out of the synagogue, but then some people would come with him from the synagogue, and that would be the first church plant. And this would be the picture. And so it was God's perfect timing that religiously idolatry would begin to be squelched. The word of God had been provided for them, and then the word of God had been provided for them and gathered together for them in these synagogues, and then ultimately then the continued teaching could be made so that Paul and other guys could show up at these synagogues and preach it in other areas, in pagan areas. And so it was religiously a good time. Culturally, it's a good time. Why was it a good time culturally? Well, if you remember, as the succession came, and even the prophecies that were given to Daniel about the, the future kingdoms, uh, you had the Medo-Persian kingdom that the, uh, that would begin to come, or the Babylonian kingdom, Medo-Persian kingdom, you'd see uh, Greece, and it's been a takeover. And so in this culturally, uh, when the Grecian kingdom would be able to take over. Alexander Great did some amazing things. And culturally, it's one of the, the blessings that was given to the world. And one of the blessings that was given to the world was that there was fine arts and, and a lot of intellectualism that was provided there that people would be able to benefit from. But one of the things is under Alexander the Great, not his rule, is that he provided one language. And so ultimately, there was one language that went out. Well, then you think about the beauty of that time, and that when the gospel was presented, now much of the world spoke Greek. Greek the Greek language, and so as a result of that, you could go and be able to speak with almost anyone, anywhere, because why? The reality of, culturally, that, that there was one language that was provided for them. And then politically, it was a good time. I was the greats no longer in control. You have Caesar in control, and so you have Rome uh, as the political power. You have Pax Romana, which is the Roman peace. And so as a result of conquering territories, that, and there being peace amongst the land, because Rome had conquered much of the known world, there was peace so that now missionaries now could only speak the language, but they could travel about freely. Because why? There should be peace throughout the land. You're not going to be war with one another in a variety of cultures on the, in, a, in a general sense because there was peace that had been established throughout the entire Roman period, the Roman kingdom. And so politically it was a great time. And not only that was that politically it was a good, good, great time, but because Rome had conquered so much land, they had to move their army from one particular section to the next. And so one of the things that was developed was a massive roadway system, a massive transportation system. And so that made it even easier for the gospel to be made, that they could walk peacefully down smooth roads that were provided for them because of the Roman army that provided that. And so when you begin to think about this, this was God's sovereignty, that it all came together perfectly, right? Came together perfectly. Religiously, it was a great time. Paul could go walk down smooth roads, free of fear of harm and danger because there was peace and much peace throughout the land. Not necessarily was free of any harm, but ultimately you wouldn't armies coming against you. Religiously, he would be able to go to these places, show up at a synagogue where the Old Testament was there, and he could argue from the Old Testament, demonstrating who Christ was at a variety of synagogues all over the pagan world. So, religiously, culturally, he could speak the same language. Politically, he was free to be able to do so and travel the roads because it was ultimately God's sovereignty that this was God's timing. And when we begin to think about that, no other time. After the, the Tower of Babel, that this was a reality that you could begin to communicate in such a wide main, wide manner to see the gospel to be able to be carried forth, And only how much easier, how much better it's gotten in our time with technology for this to be able to 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 continue to be able to communicate globally. And yet it was at this time in God's sovereignty that a legal transaction was going to be made. Now, how did this go about? How did this happen? Well, as you see in the second portion there. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. This speaks of his deity, that God came, uh, God's in, incarnation. He came and dwelt among us. He tabernacled with us, if you will. Now, let me be careful here that when we talk, speak about God's son. It's not speaking that at this particular time, God the son was created. This was a title given to him, God the son. This isn't that he was created at a particular time. So when it talks about the firstborn of creation, it's not talking about the, that the first thing that God the Father did was create God the Son. No, it's talking about the, the preeminence that, that Christ the Son has. Christ was, has equality with God the Father, but he took a form of a servant, as the Philippians chapter 2 said, and didn't, didn't think equality is something to be grasped, but humbled himself to the point of a servant, that even died death on the cross for us, was God's plan and he being God himself. And so I don't want you to think that Jesus Christ was somehow created at this particular time. Now, this is a part of God the Son's plan as well, but this was a title given to him that he would now be the Son. He would take on uh, human form, but nonetheless, he would always be God. Now, in this, were some of his uh, Godhead uh, or some of his characteristics limited? Yes. Let me give you an example. When he comes to the form of a baby, right, when Jesus Christ took on human flesh and was was, uh, was placed in the womb ultimately at this particular time he his omni uh, omnipresence was limited. he wasn't everywhere at one time as were in his its deity prior to this he could be everywhere at once that's not the case. it was limited at this particular time did he cease being God no, but he was limited in, in his ability to be everywhere at one time does that make sense and so you begin to see his deity in this particular time that he was born God sent forth his Son and his son being Jesus, so he speaks of his deity. Number two, it speaks of his humanity, that he was born of a woman. Born of a woman. And this can speak toward the virgin birth, but I think primarily it's seeing that this legal transaction has to be that uh, God needs and has to do a supernatural work in order to make payment for sin. But at the same time, the payment for sin has to be related to his creation and so as a result, there needed to be a human form in order for that to be able to happen. There could need to be a sacrifice that could be made. And so you needed God's deity, but you also needed God's humanity. His deity, that if he wasn't God, he would, he would not honor the law, and he would not be completely obedient to God because of, his, because of his sin nature, which Jesus did not have. But he needed to be humanity in order for the atonement could be made as relates to the fallen creature. And so you need to have both, deity and humanity. And then number four, you see conformity, conformity. God sent forth his son, speaks of his deity, born of a woman, speaks of his humanity, born under the law. That speaks of conformity. That's been the whole problem, right? We as sinful creatures have always rebelled against God. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Guess what we do? We are deceived and we we begin to think that God's holding back from us and he doesn't want what's best for us. And we know better than God does. And so as a result of that, we partake. We partake. And since that time, every other human being has has that same sin nature, that we were born in sin and we choose to sin and rebel against God. And so we are not in conformity to the will and ways and word of God. And so Jesus, because he was fully God and fully man, was in full conformity to the will and the word and the ways of God. And so he was born, yes, in a legal sense, under the law, but in a in conformity sense, Complete adherence and obedience to God the Father to accomplish what God the Father asked him to do. So he was born under the law. For what purpose? Legally to do something. To redeem those who were under the law. And so the conformity leads to a legal uh, process that would take, that had taken place and be able to aid and pr- protect and provide for us. This is why the whole purpose of the cross was that Jesus Christ would die on the cross for us to make payment for sin. This is what it means by... Uh, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13 and following. And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Now, how did he forgive us all our trespasses? By, verse 14, counseling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So there were legal demands against us. There was a debt that we owed God, which is why his wrath was poured out against humanity, and that legal debt had to be paid. This is why Jesus had to come as a human form and to conform to the will of God so that he could legally dismiss our case. But he was never going to do that if he was just like us. He'd be had in the form of us, but he had to be different from us, and so he was fully God in his deity and fully man in his humanity so that he could fully conform to the will and ways of God so that he could legally dismiss our case. And this is why when I'm talking to individuals about the gospel and I say, have you sinned against God? Yes. And they they communicate that they're a sinner. And I say, well, does that concern you that God would send you to hell because you have disobeyed his laws? And they said, no. And I say, why? And he says, God will forgive me. And that's true. And I don't disagree with that. And so I say, why would God forgive you? On what basis? And they say, God is love. And I say, okay, but it still didn't answer my question. On what basis is God's love a means by which your debt could be forgiven you? And this is typically the look I get. I don't know. And that's okay. And then I go, can I tell you what the Bible has to say about that? And then I begin to tell them. And the moment I say the name Jesus, they're like, oh, okay, wait a minute. I thought you were about to tell me something different and new. I've heard this one. And I go, okay, well, maybe I, I'm still tracking with you. Okay, maybe you have heard about Jesus and you understand. And so, but then I begin to look forward. Is there any love and appreciation and respect and awe and majesty toward that name? And there is none. And I, I really question whether or not they really know the same Savior I know personally and not just objectively Intellectually, Oh, yeah, 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 oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard of him. I, like I've heard of Abraham Lincoln. I've heard of George Washington. I've heard of John Hancock. And I've heard I've heard of these guys. Yes, I've heard of them. And they did great, great things. And we should respect them. No, you should love him. You Should love him. Because he's legally can dismiss your case. What does he do when he legally dismisses our case? Verse 5. To redeem those who are under law. That's legally. How? So that we might receive adoption as sons. That we become family. Become a family. Become a son. And not a slave anymore. I'm not a slave to religious traditions. I'm a son. With all of its rights. If you've never been instantly involved with an adoption case, you need to sit down with a family member within our, our faith family who has adopted someone and realize the grace of God and the sovereignty of God in adoption. It will make you appreciate your relationship with God the Father, through God the Son, and the light of God the Holy Spirit trinitarian family self-sufficient in need of nothing graciously and willingly allows others to join a perfect union we can only screw it up we can only make this thing a mess right sinful humans but yet god welcomes us why 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 would you do that why would he do that love mercy grace those are your answers when you think of adoption and families who adopt, and there's are there some self serving things for adoption, I'm sure. There's some out there who are in foster care or foster parents that shouldn't be. They're in it for money and a variety of other things, or they're in it for, for abuse, or I mean, it can bring a lot of ill ill willed and ill intended things out there. I'm sure. When you take a, a Christian family who may even have other children, and, and they're simply want to demonstrate the grace of God in the lives of others. Adoption is a beautiful picture of the grace of God. And one of my favorite Old Testament passages is when King David became king. And he looked at the kingdom of Saul that had been completely destroyed. Now Saul is dead and his son Jonathan is dead, whom David loved and had made a covenant with. And David says, Is there any of the household of Saul that I can bless in keeping of the covenant that I had made with Jonathan, the son of King Saul? And they look throughout the land and they find a son, an heir to Jonathan, and an heir to King Saul. And he was lame. He couldn't walk. David brings him before him, and I can just imagine them bringing him before the great mighty king. And the custom and the culture of that particular time was you you eradicate, you wipe out all of the lineage of the previous king and kingdoms. So that there couldn't be a coup and a desire to um, destroy the current kingdom that was in place. And I can only imagine what Mephibosheth there just lying before the king. Or maybe kind of got himself kind of set up on his knees or however. I don't know what all was wrong with his, but he was lame. He couldn't walk. And so I imagine that he's just looking up at the king, not knowing what his fate's going to be. And all of a sudden, King David tells him that you will be. A part of my family. And you will sit at the table with us. And you will eat with us. Grace. The grace of God. And so see the sovereignty of God. That Religiously. Culturally. Politically. It was perfectly the right time. For God to send forth his son. His son being deity. And and human flesh. And humanity. Complete conformity to the will. And word. And ways of God. Direct. And complete obedience. That. Adam and Eve messed up in the beginning. Jesus fulfilled and was the second, perfect Adam. Thus, to legally dismiss the case of all who'd repent and believe, so that we could be a part of His family, we could be a part of His family. What does that what does that mean for us? What does it mean for you and I, as far as being a slave or a son? Let's look at verse six and seven really quickly, and we'll, we'll be finished. Personal transformation. In light of this news, it should swell up in us. Something should tra- be transformed in us. It's changed change us in how we view things, how we view God, and how we view the law of the Old Testament, how we view Jesus of the New Testament, how we view each other, and how we view our gatherings even in this place. How does it change us? It should personally transform us. That's what we see in verse 6 and verse 7. He did all that so we could receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba. Father, so you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Oh my goodness! Like this, when I began to unpack this passage and to study, I man, I literally was like laughing and crying at the same time. I'll try to do that because it might freak you out just a little bit if that were to happen, right? But I, I want to kind of walk us through this this passage here. This personal transformation that takes first. First of all, it's it's, a, it's spiritually there's a transformation, something that takes place spiritually. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. Now, what does all this mean? He means where at first you had no longing or love or affection or allegiance to Christ in a personal way. Yes, you might have gone to church and you should fear God because he who is greater than Santa really knows everything that you do, right? He knows when you're sleeping and when you're watching and all that stuff, right? So. You know, he got, he's got to be greater than Santa Claus. And so if Santa does all that, then man, Jesus must do much more than that. Well, yes, he's God. He knows all things. And he holds everything together. And so sometimes it could be, we just look at God and so there's this conformity to God or attempt to conform to God simply because I've told you about before. I'm afraid of him and I'm afraid of what he might do to me. And there's a certain amount of fear that's necessary and right, right? The beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord. But if you see every interaction in the Bible, an angel of the Lord speaks for God, or even Jesus himself shows up on the scene, or a vision of God or the vision of the throne room of God, immediately there is terror and fear as finite human beings see the infinite and holy God. That he is a consuming fire and we are but a dried up leaf, right? Covering ourselves with fig leaves. And we know if we get too close to the holiness of God, we will be consumed. But you know what happens almost every time after that fear? If you begin to think about it, from Joshua to Ezekiel to Isaiah to John to even the Old Testament and a variety of other times with Moses and even. Um, uh, John the Beloved and the Isle of Patmos and the, the shepherds who were in the field who, where the angels came at night and began to tell them there was a multitude of angels joining them. And what does it say in each of those passages? They were greatly afraid. And you know what the spokesman for God said in each of those times? Yes, fierce, good, necessary for us to have our proper understanding of who God is and a proper understanding of who we are. The holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. And then the next statement, do not Pardon. pardoned. That's Mephibosheth before King David. He needs to understand who's on the throne and who's not. Mephibosheth sinful desires to, uh, uh, needs to die because of his heritage, needs to die because of his, of his father. He needs to die because of, of the, the, the kingdom that he was a part of. And we too, because we were of the father, father of lies. Yes, we too, because we were the prince of the power of this world. We, we were sons and daughters of disobedience. We were, yes, children of wrath. We need to know our rightful place in front of the rightful king. And just like all those of the Bible who interacted with God, God would then say, do not be afraid. You've been pardoned. And then as a result of that, to be this love and this joy and this confidence. Look who's with me. What do you got? That's what Romans eight is so great. All those powerful promises because we finally realize who's with us. If you if God is with us, who can be against us? But if you have a really small view of God, probably it's a God that can't save you. First and foremost. But it's not a God that's going to be able to defend and protect you. And that's why if we have a shallow understanding of the holiness of God and sinfulness of man. It's probably a really great reality that we're never moved out of slave to being a slave to a son. Who loves much? Those who have been forgiven much. And we realize how holy he is, and how sinful we are, and then what he's done for us. And how powerful he is. Then what became fear. Is now flipped over. And becomes boldness. If God accepted me. And God saved me. And he's with me. Who can be against me? No one. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? No one. Why? God who knows all things. Has forgiven all things. And I am now a son of the Most High. Oh, see it. Spiritual transformation. That's what John chapter 3 is speaking of. You must be born again. Has that happened to you? Not as you know about Jesus intellectually, but spiritually. There's been a heart transformation. This heart of stone that could not respond to God. This is this podium. a stone. I can hit it and I can bang on it. And it doesn't scream or doesn't react or doesn't respond because it's dead. Get the, that picture. That was my heart. That was your heart prior to salvation. Black as sin and dead. Hard. Non-responsive. But the Bible says he took out that heart of stone and made it a heart of flesh. That if you were to take my hand and stab a knife through it, it would cry out. It would respond to pain. Why? It's alive. I've been made alive in Christ Jesus. Have you ever been made alive in Christ? And if not, you're still a slave. Yes, you're doing religious things and those religious things probably puffs you up and makes you feel good about yourself and other people look at you and go, how nice and how sweet and how pleasant is that? But before God, it's it's filthy rags. Just so you know, filthy rags translate in the Old Testament. Minstrel rags. If you know anything about ceremonial laws and civil laws uh, of the Old Testament, you were ceremonially unclean. You couldn't be in the gathering. During that period of time. And he says. And that's what you're bringing to God. Saying look what I've done for you. It's our best. So he saves us in spite of that. Redeemed us. And spiritually transformed our hearts. We now love him. He's placed his spirit within us. This beautiful picture of salvation. Something that God does. To us. And then yes. Naturally we respond. In repentance. And faith. And so spiritually there was a transformation. And it leads to intimacy. It says there in verse 6. Because your sons got sent a spirit of his son into our hearts, crying Abba Father. And let me just point to you real quick you just need to be able to see this. Is, this is really important for us in our understanding. Crying Abba Father. The word Abba there is a word that it's a word of endearment. Papa or Daddy. Right? Now when I say this, I want to be, try to be very careful, and I don't want to put too many disclaimers out there but because I, I, I know that people react differently, and some people are more emotional than other people, and I get all that, but I want to be very cautious here. Just the other day, I was watching a sporting event, and the guy came on after the sporting event, and they were bragging on him, and like anybody who has any form of humility, any trace of humility in them, tries to deflect it to their team or their teammates. and None of them are giving God glory for this. but were, And even some who try to attempt to give God, God glory for it. Here's what I heard one guy say just the other day. And I, I just want to give the man upstairs, you know, a shout-out for, you know, blessing me. The man upstairs, a shout-out for blessing me. I'm able to take a round ball and put it in a hoop or leather pigskin and, carried over a line that means something in this painted end zone, right? We worship these guys because they do things like carry a pigskin skin and tight pants and cleats and helmets, right? And this is the picture. I mean, I want to give God glory. And I, I, mean, I think you can give God glory. I'm not making sense. But here's my point. What kind of intimacy is there with a, the man upstairs? The moment I hear that, and I'm not trying to criticize if any of you say that. You know what I don't hear Abba, Father, that spirit that resides in you that cries out, Abba, Father, Daddy. Now, I get it. Some of you might call your dad a variety of things, and, and, it, and it might be because you don't have a close enough relationship to your dad. And then maybe you've got terms of endearment that sound crass, and that's fine. I get that too, and it's okay. Uh, that, but as long as it is a term of endearment. But for many of these, I believe it's because there's never been a spiritual transformation. There's never been spiritually a transformation which never leads to intimacy. I'm not going to respond to my Heavenly Father as the man upstairs. First of all, there's no stairs that can get me there on a practical sense, right? And He's not just a man. So anything I just described to you before about His state and my state shows that He probably doesn't understand either one of those if you make a statement like that. But no. I don't want my kids referring to me as the God who gave my mom seed, right? Right? I, it's not, I'm not really excited about that. Or the old man, some old man. Probably I am compared to your age, but hopefully we had a relationship a little stronger than that, you know. So I was thinking it might be a little better that we were much more tight than that. Just the old man, or you know, my parent figure, right? Somebody speaks of a relationship. Oh, no, that's my dad. Oh, that's better. That's my dad. What do you know about your dad? And then they can tell about their father. See this picture, this intimacy that the spirit now longs for a father. One who will speak to us and leads us. And God's one who's perfect, unlike myself to my children or my father to me or your father to you or you being a father to others. And you know what the beautiful thing is? You might have had the worst father ever. You know, you don't have to have a really great dad to learn proper father, fatherhood. You just need to look in the scripture and get to know God the Father. And all of a sudden, you begin to take on his characteristics. How do we begin to take on his characteristics? By looking in the word. Because God sent the spirit of his son to lead us in our hearts, to know who He is and to worship Him. There's an intimacy there. And then lastly, there's a guarantee. It's a guarantee. Look at this guarantee. So you are no longer, verse 7, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. No longer a son, a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I have in your notes there, not only verse 7, but Ephesians 1. 13 and 14. If it's in my Bible, you just flip over one page. Galatians is followed by the book of Ephesians. Flip over it. I just wanted to be able to show you this. I'm going to read this passage to you, then we're going to be dismissed. I want to show you this massive guarantee. But in this, I want to back up, and I want to begin in verse 3, and I just want to read verses 3 through 14 in the book of Ephesians and just let you see almost everything that we've talked about in our passage today coming to light. The sovereignty of God as he walked through and began to, to show us in the fullness of time, deity, humanity, conformity, legally, making part of the family, as we see the, um, this legal transaction taking place, to, you know, leading us to a personal transformation. I want you to see this. It's all right there tied together. And I want you to see this guarantee of us being an heir and what it means to be an heir of God. Right? Track with me. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Who has blessed us in Christ with every every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's what it is to be an heir. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And we've been blessed in Christ. Everything that Christ receives, we receive. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. You see, God's sovereignty. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. There it is, part of the family. According to the purpose of his will. There's his sovereignty again. To the praise of his glorious grace, which, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, being in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. All that's the legal, trans, the legal transaction has taken place. Which he lavished upon, lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. To unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth, and in Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who are the first, uh, so we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Here it is: In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed. With the promised Holy Spirit. That's the spirit of the son. That bears witness in our hearts. That we saw in the previous patches. Who is the guarantee. The earnest money. Down payment. Of our inheritance. Until we acquire possession of it. to The praise of his glory. And then it just, we could continue to read. In the rest of chapter 3. I mean the rest of chapter 1. Of this particular passage of Ephesians 1. And to continue to see all these blessings. That have been lavished upon us. Seated at the right hand of Christ. Who is at the right hand of God the Father. This is who we are. If. If. We've been made alive in Christ. We've been freed. To have personal justification. A spiritual justification to take place. Because Christ saved us. Only question is. Are you a slave? Or are you a son? Say well pastor. How do I know if I'm a son, his spirit will bear witness with your spirit that you're a child of God. The fruit of the spirit will be evident in your life, as we're going to study coming up in a few weeks in Galatians chapter 5. There should be a love and a desire for the things of God. And so the question is, is that true for you? Is that true for me? If not, maybe you're operating more under legalism and the laws and rules than freedom as a son. See the work that Christ has done for us and trust in that work for your salvation if you've never been saved. And if you have questions. <clears throat> please talk to someone about that. There's no reason to go through your life questioning. Let the word of God, let someone who can handle the word of God to open the word of God up to you and begin to give you confidence for your salvation. Let's continue to walk and live in fear. That is not what God has for us. A multitude of. Of fears can be cast out. A multitude of sins can be covered by love. And perfect love casts out fear, the Bible says. And so, let us open up the word and help you and aid you and encourage you. That you may know that perfect love and not have fear. And if you're here, and you absolutely, man, I know God has transformed my life. Then, man, we should be sharing this with others. Who are still enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. Simple tr- religious traditions. That God may open their eyes and adopt them as sons. They may no longer live as slaves. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at Chabacasino.com.